the people you meet when you're in the military become friends forever. They are your family. I can't tell you how many holidays, birthdays, things that we worked on, you know, we didn't, we didn't go home. Our families weren't with us. So you had people that would invite you to their house, or if you were on duty, they'd bring you Christmas dinner or whatever the case may be. And you knew that wherever you were, they had your back and they were your brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org, and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. I'm Scott Schultz, and we're back in Osseo, Wisconsin, visiting with another veteran from West Central Wisconsin, Pam Graham. Good evening, Pam. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. And Pam is a a career naval officer who has an interesting story. She said she's willing to share with us. And first of all, you're from Osseo, right? Yes. I was not born here, but I lived here most of my childhood, graduated from high school here. This is my home, and I was happy to come back after I retired. I was hoping you'd say that you weren't born here because that's kind of an interesting part of the story. You're a (laughs) naval officer, and uh, tell us where you were born. I was actually born in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is the home of Paris Island um, Marine Corps uh, Recruit Depot. Both of my parents were in the Marine Corps, and we have a family lore, if you will, is that I stood at attention before I was even born. So I come from strong military roots. I spent some time at Paris Island myself on regular duty and kind of an interesting place, but you didn't get to experience a lot of that. You kind of left that no. when you were young. Correct. Did you have any idea that uh, you'd wind up in the service at all? Uh, no, actually, um, that's another funny thing from my childhood is apparently I knew at a young age that my parents both served. And because my mom was a woman in the Marines, for whatever reason, I had it in my head that I was required to then go do that. Um, and I would ask, you know, do I have to go in the Marine Corps, mom? I don't want to. So there was never any anticipation of me going into the service because I just didn't feel like it's what I wanted to do. You never told me, I don't think, how your parents reacted to you saying it that way, that do I have to join the Marine Corps? They just kind of laughed about it. Um, You know, I was little at the time, so I'm sure it was, you know, cute with my little blonde pigtails and saying, I don't want to go in the Marine Corps. So I'm sure they just laughed. (laughs) 
you got through your childhood, mm-hmm. went to high school, as you said, at uh, Osseo Fairchild High School. Yep. Tell us what happened from there. How did you wind up in the Navy? <laughs> well, I took a year off after high school because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I worked down at the Norsky Nook in Osseo serving pie and all the delicious things that they had there. And then I decided I better get moving if I was going to go to college. So I uh, was accepted at UW-Eau Claire and I was working to pay my way through school. And I worked a couple of jobs and was going to school when I failed my eight o'clock class because I was not able to work late and then um, get up and get to class, I realized that that was not working. So I had to find another way to pay for college. So my brother had just enlisted in the Navy several months before that. And I was talking to him and he said, just join the Navy. And I'm thinking, I don't want to join the Navy. You know, I don't want to go on a boat. And uh, so I (laughs) went over to- you, You didn't even have that option, by the way, to go on a boat. Nope. At the time? No, not at the time. Um, the combat exclusion laws did not allow that when I first joined the military. So really at that point, I didn't have a, well, I didn't really know anything about it, honestly. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll look at the Air Force or, or whatever. That was what I was thinking right away. But I couldn't go right away to the Air Force. So then I went over to the Navy recruiter and talked to the recruiter that had brought my brother in. And he talked me into going. So I said, well, how soon can I leave? And he said, uh, well, you should be able to go right away. I was going to be an intelligence specialist. Well, as it turned out, that didn't pan out. And so I said, well, what's the next school open? As it turned out, it was air traffic control. Mm. So I left and went to boot camp and then on to air traffic control school. What year was that? Uh, Let's see. I joined in 1986. So I went through boot camp in 86, graduated in December, and then went on to air traffic control school, I believe, January in uh, 87. In 87. Were there a lot of women in air traffic control school that you noticed? Yep. I would say there was a good amount. We had three out of possibly eight people in my class. So, you know, the group that I went through school and graduated with. So, you know, I would say at least 30 to 40% of the controllers, that might be high, were women. You know, obviously at that point, we could only go to shore duty, including overseas duty. We couldn't get onto a ship at all um, Mm -hmm. until I think that was 95. I think they lifted that exclusion. I'd have to double check that time frame though. Actual air traffic control work has to be a little stressful. It could be stressful, but honestly, it was just, it was a great career. It was a fun job. What's not to like about talking to pilots flying jets and every other kind of uh, aircraft you could think of. My first duty station was in Iceland, Keflavik, Iceland at the uh, NATO base there. All we did for air traffic control at that place was uh, final control. So basically from 10 miles in using a precision approach radar. So we just had a very finite amount of interaction with aircraft at that point, but very critical point. I was fully qualified there as a facility watch supervisor. That's like the highest qualification as an air traffic controller at each duty station. That means you're fully qualified on every position. So I started there, got my qualification there, and then was able to move into other areas of air traffic control throughout my career. That has to bring a lot of uh, respect from the people in the air did you have contact with them much other than talking with them on approaches or taking yep. off? 
Oh yeah. We, you know, we worked in the flight planning um, office. So we were there helping out with, you know, making sure that they had all the information they needed to establish their flight route. And we liaise on with the weather folks so that we could make sure that they had the information to, you know, have a safe flight. Later in my career, you know, when I was an air traffic control officer, then, you know, you interacted with pilots on a different level, strategic planning, different things of that nature. So it was different contact throughout my time um, as I continued to grow in the field. Now I saw a picture of you earlier with Naval Lieutenant bars on your collar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you let us know a little bit how you uh, manage that? Well, I started out enlisted. I went in as an E2 because I had uh, a year of college. So 20 credits of uh, college would get you bumped up from an E1 to an E2 to start out with. So that was kind of nice. And then uh, I made it up through E7. So that's when you put on your khakis in the in the uh, Navy. I was a chief then. So that's that's kind of a big deal. That same year, I took the chief's exam. I also decided, well, I'm just going to put in my application for limited duty officer program. Mm-hmm. You know, what do I have to lose? I thought I might as well try every avenue I can to get promoted. So I had put on chief trans- down in Puerto Rico the first time I was there. Uh, I transferred to Memphis to the Naval Air Traffic Control School, and which was actually transitioning to Pensacola at the time. I was not there very long, and the results for the limited duty officer uh, selection board came out, and I found out that I was selected as an ensign, air traffic control officer, um, that same year. So that started a whole whole new trail in my uh, career. Are they called um, Mustangs in the Navy by chance or anything like that? Yep. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I don't know all the Navy terminology. You should be impressed with me that I looked at your bars, your two bars on your collar, being a Marine mm-hmm. myself and said, you're a Navy lieutenant and not yep. uh, not a captain because. Well, yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny. And actually, um, we uh, had a joint um, training. So we had the Marine Corps. Uh, air traffic controllers in our school. We worked together. We were assigned at you know same locations. So I worked with Marines throughout my career as an air traffic controller. Let me back you way up to basic training. Okay. You did okay in basic training. I did all right. Yep. Uh, I uh, I got there and my recruiter had, had given me a little bit of a story and told me you don't have to worry about push-ups because I was a little nervous about doing push-ups mm-hmm. and I knew you had to do a lot. He told me, oh, you can, they, they let you do girl push-ups, you know, on your knees. Um, so I thought, no, ah, that's no big deal then. I'm, I'm good to go. Well, I got there and that was not true. So um, <laughs> I had to do a whole lot of just regular push-ups. But I got selected as the yeoman for the company, which meant I just got to do a lot of paperwork. But then I was also selected as the honor recruit for my group. So that was kind of a great honor for me. Um, yeah. We had started out with 80 recruits. And I think we graduated somewhere in the range of 40 to 45. We lost about half our recruits to to just not making the cut. That Mustang thing, its it's been so long since my service time. Mm-hmm. We always looked at the Mustangs a little bit differently than uh, those who came through the straight officer school situation. Mm-hmm. And did you feel some of that? Did you or, or did you not notice? Yeah. Oh, no. I, 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 you know, you recognize that you have a little bit more credibility if you've come up through the ranks and you have done the things that your sailors 
are doing currently. My first duty station after I got commissioned was actually on a aircraft carrier, the USS Constellation. So besides being uh, one of just a handful of women on board, I came in as a new ensign and I had zero experience at sea. So I had to prove a lot, but it was probably one of my favorite duty stations, the most challenging and the most rewarding duty stations I've ever been on. That had just known a path they wanted to go with you. You mentioned before that women were not allowed onto aircraft carriers or ships in general. Earlier in your career, uh, how long had they been on the ships before you were sent onto the Constellation? I feel like they had lifted the exclusion in 1995. It was 95 or 96, early 96. And so I was uh, then assigned in 97. I went on to the carrier in 97. So I was the first air traffic control officer or carrier air traffic control officer female there. And I was the only woman in that department. It was a little weird, but I was never concerned. Okay. You know, it's a big ship. There's a whole lot of people on there, but we were constantly, you know, you're working, you're eating or you're sleeping. You know, there's not a lot else that you got to worry about. So um, I had a great team and and they taught me a lot. So I was very fortunate. That carrier is not a riverboat. And (laughs) how many planes and what kind of planes were coming and going from that? That's a hard question because I don't remember how many planes, but we had F-18s, you know, E-2s, we had the COD, we had helicopters, we had the S-3s, the tanker aircraft. Um, we, We had a lot going on. That flight deck was very highly orchestrated by the guys up in the tower in the, the yellow shirts and, and all the guys that are on the flight deck. So when you were doing flight ops, there was it was constant motion. That's just not a regular ground flight line. Oh, no. <laughs> that, there, there's a lot of dancing that goes on, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The aircraft on a carrier, their wings fold up so that you can fit more planes mm-hmm. on. You have them stored down in the hangar bay with these huge elevators that'll bring them up and when they're needed and they'll be staged in the order that they need to go out. There is not a lot of room on that carrier. And, you know, everyone has to have their head on a swivel to make sure that they're not caught where they don't need to be. It's one of the most dangerous locations you could ever be um, is on an aircraft on an aircraft carrier deck. Uh, no doubt about that. It's mm-hmm. always just kind of amazed me, number one, that you can actually land an aircraft on an on a deck mm-hmm. that's moving how much up and down is going on on that deck from well there there's the a good amount um you know when they're coming in they have a a ball we called it the meatball so it was a light that went in it was stationary but depending on where they were on their altitude and glide path it would depend on where it you know, landed in that um, window. And so when they had it center where they needed to be on glide path, they'd sit, they'd call the ball is what they do. So then you knew that they were good to go and they should catch the three wire. That was kind of cool when we were, and again, just like I did in Keflavik, we in the, in the radar room, which is where we were, we brought him in on approach and got him into the final. And then we would bring him in on the final approach. It was kind of amazing. Contrary to popular belief, the air traffic controllers are not in the tower on a carrier. Those are pilots up there that are mm-hmm. during visual flight rules. They'll bring them in. We on the carrier are strictly the radar from approach in. All these people that I've talked with and, and you included right now, mm-hmm. 
you all in the end say, well, yeah, it's what we do. It's, it's cool. And mm-hmm. there has to be some level of stomach churning going on in and out, isn't there? There is. But I think when you're in the throes of, you know, bringing in a, a group of aircraft, you, you don't have time to be nervous or worried about it. You know, afterwards, sometimes, you know, especially on hairy days where the weather was just horrible or like on the carrier, if fuel was running low and you were having to get fuel out to the airborne aircraft, you know, it got a little tense, you know, but everyone is highly trained to make sure that you can do what is needed despite whatever conditions come up. So you might think about it at the beginning, but you, you, you would have briefings before you went into a scenario, especially for like the night ops and things like that. And just to make sure everyone was on the same page, they had all the information about weather and, you know, conditions and things like that. And then you just sat down, you got to work and it may get hairy and it may get a little bit scary, if you will, but you just, you did what you had to do. And then when it was all said and done, you had a huge sigh of relief and it's just like, okay, we got it done. On the cruise I did over to um, the Persian Gulf in 99, we had 10,000 carrier landings, which was a record at that time. And we did not lose anybody. So that was pretty amazing. Again, you know, highly trained people. They always say, train like you fight and fight like you train. Despite what you may encounter, you're always ready. How long were you at sea at a time? Our cruises usually lasted, you know, six to seven months or so. You know, we would have... I'm trying to think how probably a month or so was the longest we may have been at sea without a port call. It just depended on, you know, what we had going on. You know, when we weren't on station, if you will, we would make some port calls. Um, We were a conventional aircraft carrier, so we had to refuel. We were in a nuke, so we had to refuel and take on stores and things of that nature. So we would have the occasional port call, got to see a lot of amazing places I never would have seen without that opportunity to be stationed on the Constellation. Things were different for you in the military service than they were for your mom, I'm thinking. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Um, you know, she, she was in during the Vietnam era, you know, she was stationed at, at Paris Island. So, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't see combat or, or anything like that, yeah. but she was in at a time where it wasn't necessarily accepted or appreciated to have a female in the military. Um, she had to get tough, if you will. <laughs> and she didn't take, she didn't yeah. take much grief. She still doesn't actually. We kind of laugh a little bit. She's, she's a tough lady. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she always told me, though, yeah, don't join the Marine Corps, though. They don't know how to treat their ladies. And uh, I'm thinking, well, Mom, I think 20 years later, at least I'm sure that they do. And I, I had a lot of uh, friends that were female Marines. And, you know, things were different at that point. So I was glad for that. I met your mom, and she's uh, seems like she's always in charge. <laughs> she is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, don't, you don't dispute when Mom is in charge. <laughs> But she, uh, you know, she taught us all a lot of respect. Uh, she and my dad, you know, our our family is very military driven. I like to tell her, you know, she always says, well, I was only in for two years. I said, yeah, but mom, you've you've uh, then brought on, a, you know, two plus generations of people that are also called to serve. She, you know, my brother and I were both in the Navy. I have her grandkids. Her, her grandson was a Marine. Two granddaughters were in the Navy and one granddaughter was in the Army. Who knows what the next generation will bring? But uh, I said, you're part of that. You made that happen. So she had a lot of contribution. 
your transition out of the service was uh, pretty smooth. Your service hasn't stopped. You're pretty busy with at, mm-hmm. at the Legion and, and uh, VFW and Osseo. Yep. Uh, why? Well, there's a, a couple reasons. I wanted to always stay connected to veterans. When I first came out, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I retired and thought I was going to be a stay-at-home mom, which was probably the hardest job I've ever tried, but I needed, I needed to be engaged as well. So, you know, as well as raising my kids, which was, it has been an awesome experience, obviously I needed something else as well. So I joined the VFW hoping that I'd be able to, you know, go with my dad to meetings and things like that. He passed away before I was able to have too much interaction with him at the VFW. W meetings, but I've met such an amazing group of people there that they absolutely care for each other. It's like still being in and having your shipmates have your back. You always know that those people are going to be there for you. And this likewise, you know, I would be there for any of them. And the same in the in the Legion. My mom started getting active in the Legion after my dad passed away. It's like, all right, I'll start coming to the meetings. It's something that we can do together. You know, we're both very active in it. But over the years that I've been in, Buzz Thompson, uh, who you're, I'm sure, very familiar with, has asked me to, you know, take on a couple of things. One is the uh, Osseo Veterans Memorial Park project that we have here going on in Osseo, and also the Reads Across America program that we have sp- uh, started, you know, a few years ago. Those are just really important things that can allow me to kind of give back and remember veterans, you know, past and present. So it's been very rewarding and, and, uh, it keeps me busy and out of trouble. So I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> I've been at, uh, several Wreath Across America and done some speaking a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Things like that go beyond to me a feel good. This is not necessarily just a feel good thing for the people who are organizing it. Yeah. There are a lot of processes for families and veterans themselves. There's some powerful things. Does that get involved in why you're active in those kinds of things? Yes. To me, it is imperative that we remember our veterans. Um, the thing I really like about the Wreaths Across America program is that when we place a wreath on a gravestone, we say that military member's name out loud. There's a saying that you die twice. Yep. Once when you leave this earth and the second time, the last time your name is said. So we're going to keep that going. We want to make sure that those names are said, that people are remembered long into the future, that our kids and their kids remember the sacrifices that are made by military members and their families. It's just so important for the families of these military members to understand how much their member is appreciated, that their service was not in vain, that there was a purpose for that service. So um, it's a it's a wonderful program, and I'm so glad that we've gotten it, it started here in, in our community. We're talking with Pam Graham, retired naval officer, a Mustang officer from Osseo, Wisconsin. Pam, we've mentioned a few different times the word family in the past few minutes. Yep. You had an interesting, as we've established early <laughs> on, an interesting military dynamic with your family. Mm-hmm. Do you see an advantage in handling what you experienced in the military and the transition out of the military compared with 
someone whose family hasn't necessarily been involved in the military. I'm thinking, I guess, about first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. Some first-generation college students struggle because Mm -hmm. they don't know the ropes of figuring out, filling out a FAFSA or or what what have you. Some of the Mm -hmm. simple things. Oh, yeah. How do you talk with families about families understanding the military experience? It's really just letting them know that, and you're talking families that are of members that are joining. Yes. Yes. It's really making them understand that the military experience is not just going in, training, going to war, you know, being a a person on your own, not knowing anybody, you know, they're worried about their kid. And that's to be expected, especially if they don't have military experience. But I just, I would tell them, and I have told family members that this is an opportunity for their service person to experience something way bigger than what they would at home. Yes, they're going to have training. They're going to learn things that they would need to know if they were to go to war, but they're going to learn a trade. They're going to learn what it means to be self-sufficient. They're going to learn what it is to be part of a team. The people you meet when you're in the military become friends forever. They are your family. I can't tell you how many holidays, birthdays, things that we worked on, you know, we didn't, we didn't go home. Our families weren't with us. So you had people that would invite you to their house, or if you were on duty, they'd bring you Christmas dinner or whatever the case may be. And you knew that wherever you were, they had your back and they were your brothers and sisters. You know, the guys call it the brotherhood, brotherhood and sisterhood, if you will. These are people that become so important to you and you stay in contact with as many, you know, the ones that really have an impact on you. It's the best choice I ever made in my life from the standpoint of getting an opportunity to go out and see the world. You know, they say that in the recruiting thing is go see the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't get very far, but sometimes you get to go to places that you never would have the opportunity to see. And you get to experience cultures that you never would have had the opportunity to do. And really, you can understand people from around the world um, by being in those locations. And you can earn, you, you can earn your education. You know, there's just, there's so many advantages. It's not all great. It's not all fun and games for sure, but mm-hmm. uh, it really makes you a, a pretty well-rounded person if you allow it to. And you, you know, it's what you make of it too. Things were different than when your parents were in the service mm-hmm. than when you were in the service. For that mm-hmm. matter, things were way different probably for me in my days of service versus yours. And uh, things are probably different for today's new veterans coming out. Absolutely. What's our responsibility for taking care of the next generation of veterans? Do you feel any responsibility at all? Oh, absolutely. I truly do. And I think you see that every time we have a meeting at the cabin in the Pines. Um, We are recruiting more and more young veterans. To see them interacting with like our Vietnam veterans, our Persian Gulf veterans, it's amazing. For those guys that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, to be able to interact with those people that served in Vietnam, to be able to compare stories to see how they have dealt with trauma, have dealt with re-engaging in civilian life. I really feel like it, it has been a godsend to both sides. You know, our Vietnam veterans still suffer from PTSD effects, you know, by virtue of many 
circumstances, coming back from that war, being involved in that. You see the benefits of them talking and interacting with these younger veterans as well. It's such an amazing thing. And we are so blessed to be able to have those exchanges, you know, in that just little informal, it's nothing, it's just talking, you yeah. know, after a meeting or whatever the case may be, but to tell the stories and to to laugh, which is amazing to me that some of the things that these guys have been through, that they can tell the stories and laugh about it but really being able to understand the significance and the huge impact that those circumstances had on those people, that they can still have that levity about some of the circumstances is amazing. I'm glad you brought up the mention of telling stories because Mm -hmm. that's one of the things this podcast is all about. And we decided that we should have a woman's voice on other than my old voice and Michael Orban's voice. And we're kind of hoping that we can bring you in here and uh, do some interviews with people. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to working with you on that. Yep. I think it'll be a great opportunity to be able to just chat like we are right now. I think gives me a little bit of security in the fact that I could probably do it <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to engage in a good conversation, but really to to hear a lot about what people say, I think will be pretty amazing. So folks, if you didn't pick all that up, <laughs> Pam Graham is going to be working with us on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. And we really appreciate that and look mm-hmm. forward to all your input. Yep. I'm excited about the opportunity. You bet. Well, that's another edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. Remember, if you are in crisis, dial 988 and hit the number one. And don't wait. Don't hesitate. It's stigma-free. This is educational. It's not stigmatizing. I'm Scott Schultz. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.